You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and I'm joined today by almost, almost Rosenfeld media author, Cheryl Kababa. Hello, Cheryl. How you doing? Hello, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm great, and uh, I'm excited uh, because your book is coming out in February of 2023. We're we're sitting in uh, I'm sitting in a studio in Brooklyn in December of 2022, uh, and I'm looking forward to things that happen during the winter that make me happy, and this is going to be one of them. Cheryl's book is called Closing the Loop: Systems Thinking for Designers. And uh, let me give you the basic intro for Cheryl, if you don't know her already. Um, Cheryl is one of the many alumni of Adaptive Path that I've encountered. In fact, I'm like starting to wonder who who worked there that we we haven't published yet. I'm going to have to go through and maybe I'll have to talk to Merholtz and and see. Um, Cheryl's currently a design consultant uh, at Substantial. Um, she's got a background in journalism, uh, and political science, and she's worked at some really interesting places, including Frog and, uh, work with Ikea and Microsoft Gates Foundation, and, uh, is someone who's really interested in the big picture, uh, of systems thinking and obviously how it applies to designers. So, um, you know, Cheryl, I, I, I feel like, like certainly looking at a lot of not only what, what people are talking about in, in our recent books and conferences, but just in the, in the community in general, is we're all almost like paralyzed. Like what I do as a, a researcher or designer today, I, I ask this question or I move this pixel or whatever it is I might do is going to have potentially a lot of consequences down the road. And um, it's scary. It's scary, even if I feel aware of this and feel like I, um, I'm looking at things through a lens of, of ethical behavior uh, and human-centeredness, that, that almost feels like not enough anymore. And I'm wondering if, really, your book and systems thinking in general are, are great tools to help get past this paralysis. Yeah, I feel like you're not wrong about that. This idea that it's really hard to make decisions now, especially if you're working, for example, in user experience design and you're working on products at enormous scales, right? That affect a lot of people that have a lot of systems around them, frankly. Um, It's it puts us in this spot that I don't think tons of designers, you know, a century ago necessarily had to deal with right away because they were oftentimes, like as we think about the sort of beginnings of what we now call human-centered design, I think I refer to the Eames, for example, in my book, um, you know, you're thinking about designing something like a chair What are the environments it's going to sit in? Who is going to be using it? And um, yeah, beyond like the direct environment it's in, what kinds of buildings, et cetera. And I think there were opportunities to kind of 
design in a way where you are in some way designing for yourself and for those around you. And then you would kind of, I don't know, extend that idea is like the idea of products grew and scaled. And now I think you can, you can just be a designer straight out of school, especially as we think about things like digital products. And suddenly you're working on something like, I don't know, a social platform that 2 billion people are using. Um, and I think that makes it really hard to understand the impact of your decisions. Um, and yeah, maybe there's, there's some sort of idea that the way we've been learning how to conduct design up until this point is somewhat inadequate for that kind of scale. So, uh, so inadequate, there's something missing and is that where systems thinking is a, a tool to, to help? Yeah, absolutely. And systems thinking isn't new. There's a long history of kind of systems thinking methodologists, systems thinking scientists who have tried to understand the complexity of our world through the lens of kind of abstracting the, our experiences, right? So mapping um, how things are connected to each other, um, et cetera. And there's many different ways of describing this. It could be like hard systems, soft systems, system dynamics. Um, and I think as I sort of grew interested in this space several years ago, I was thinking about it through the lens of like, I'm somebody who understands design thinking and I understand sort of that process, which has now become fairly formalized, especially in design education. Um, but I was thinking this doesn't account for just some of the un unintended consequences I'm seeing, you know, I've been a design consultant and some of my clients were kind of grappling with like, how do we think about emerging technologies and how might they affect other people? And even if they're not, let's say, immediately interested in the adverse effect on people, there's also like, how do we not become a headline mm -hmm. um, in the worst way possible? And that itself is a motivator as well, right? And I think um, one of the issues that I found with formalized systems thinking is that oftentimes it's meant to model systems and system dynamics. And you get into this space where your activities lead to something like, let's say like a systems map. And that systems map is actually in many ways the, the end products. Like you would think about ways of intervening and see how they affect the system and model that. Um, continuously so that you can just watch how the system changes. And for me as a design practitioner, I was a little bit like, I that seems just like way beyond what I can focus on considering I'm in the space of doing design research or design strategy and trying to figure out how things like products and services become real. Um, I started trying to apply some of the tenets of systems thinking and using some of the tools, but then kind of combining it with what I knew from design processes and design thinking so that it could be more accessible, not just to myself, but to other designers as well. Because 
I think it's just this idea of broadening your lens is really useful. Um, and in a way that maybe isn't accounted for when we just look at like the human centered design or design thinking process as it exists today. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about the relationship with design thinking. What, what does systems thinking, what gaps does it fill that design thinking falls short on? Yeah, so the model that I often think about, I mean, there's a couple of like pretty prominent models for design thinking, right? There's the double diamond um, that was originally developed by the UK Design Council. There's also the, um, you know, the five part process that was popularized by IDEO and the D school. And that's the one I often refer to and I refer to it in the book is like empathize, define, ideate, prototype, test. And this is something that, you know, designers have like really hammered into them in, in design education these days. Um, and I find that what that process sort of lacks is, well, let's talk about its strengths first, right? Like first, that idea of un gaining foundational understanding about your end users and um, those who will be using your products or services is really important and hasn't always been a part necessarily of things like product design. So understanding the context. Okay, let's say I, wa I worked at Microsoft a million years ago, I won't say when, <laughs> but um, I was working on personal finance management software. And even back then, just the idea of um, doing these studies where we would just, we would go into somebody's house and like ask them tons of questions about they, how they manage their personal finances. And some of them were users of the software we were designing. Some of them were not. Some of them were um, doing things on paper and some of them were um, using our competitors' products. And I think that was really good for basically understanding the context in which our product is going to sit and the pain points, et cetera, of people who are trying to do this work. So it was already extensive beyond just like, hey, we have a product and we're going to design it. And then we're just going to like test it with people. It's like that foundational understanding in many ways changes the game because then you can kind of think about people's needs in front of your product or surrounding your product. And, um, and then you would go on to use that to kind of define your decision-making, ideate, et cetera. And I think that process is generally pretty good for getting you quickly into like an iterative design phase. But I think what it lacks is sort of an intention around the variety of contexts in which that use would sit. Um, you know, for example, when I was doing that research, and I think this happens a lot today as well, it's like, oh, yeah, we were just going to like, people's homes who happen to live like around Microsoft. <laughs> mm -hmm. And maybe like we would do a little bit of demographic work to be like, oh, maybe there's some people who fall into like this income level or something. But we weren't at all focused on like, even if this were being translated in other languages, like how are people in other countries like really fundamentally using this? I remember working on, for example, icons for the Japanese version of this product. And I was kind of like, yeah, I'm just being told by like their team, like what will work and what won't work for icons for this. But I honestly don't understand. I don't know anything about the context in which this software is going to be used. 
Um, and so you can extend in that way, but you can also extend in terms of understanding, okay, why are people using personal finance, financial management software to begin with? Like why, um, why, why do they have to like use that in, just to be able to do their taxes as an individual if they're not mm. like hiring an accountant? Like what is wrong with our tax system right now <laughs> that requires this? Um, and what does like the regulatory environment have to do with this? Um, and I think there is a lot of just, yeah, go, go, go and kind of like design the product, put it out in the world and kind of see what happens. I think in that case, it was pretty innocuous. I don't think there were any like issues with with um, any major issues with like taking that approach. Although there were problems that were inherent in the financial system, which is like, you know, the way information comes into the product, like it was really broken. Um, and that had to do with kind of like external um, entities that were designing the ways that financial information gets passed around. Um, I don't think like designers necessarily understand all of that sort of surrounding context, mm -hmm. but it's really useful to like, I don't know, one, I, I don't even know that I necessarily talk about this explicitly in the book, but you can find different points of um, intervention that are that can actually lead to innovation. So, you know, if you identify like there could be a new way of doing this thing that sits outside of our purview, you as a designer might not be equipped to do it, but just identifying it could create opportunities for your organization. The way that I describe this is you're going to an, into a phase where you're expanding your thinking. So if you think about the five-part human design, human-centered mm -hmm. design process, empathize, define, ideate, prototype, test, before that, I have a phase where um, I suggest that you expand your thinking. So think more broadly about who your stakeholders are and the various contexts in which maybe your design decision-making and other types of decision-making might sit. Like that's like a larger understanding of the problem space. Um, and then there is imagine. So like imagine different possible solutions that you might not actually be able to execute on because it might not be a product that solves this. It might be policy. Um, it might be other kinds of, um, yeah, other kinds of government decisions. It could be business, different like business models. Um, it could be ways, different ways of working. Um, there are lots of opportunities. And so you as a designer are equipped to imagine those things even if you can't execute on them. And then this could dovetail, um, some of those interventions could then dovetail into the design thinking process while others go into the space of, you know, policy, like regulatory environment, or maybe they go into like another space where more academic research is needed. Um, and that just allows you to use your design capabilities to help facilitate other people's knowledge and not just executing as a right. designer. So I, I, like, as you're describing that, I'm imagining, for example, uh, someone working in a large uh, financial services organization where uh, compliance is a big issue. And designers often complain about, well, you know, I have to basically 
designed around that constraint of what the compliance officers are going to say is okay and is not. Uh, but if you are sort of identifying issues that, you know, uh, as you're doing your mapping of the broader system that ultimately become ones of policy and maybe compliance that you can't really do anything about right now or maybe ever, but you can at least sort of set them aside and have them ready to discuss the next time you have an opportunity <laughs> to sit down with the compliance officers and have a better conversation with them. And, uh, you know, this is, that's not going to change things overnight, obviously, but that's kind of the point, right? I mean, we have to be thinking not just more broadly, but more long-term. Yeah, exactly. And I think the long-term thinking piece, yeah, it might, it might feel frustrating and especially like today's sort of technology industry environment, it might feel like a point of frustration to, to do more analysis up front. Um, but I do think that, yeah, it's necessary. It's necessary to build that understanding, even if you can't do anything about it. Um, I saw a recent Twitter thread and I wish I could credit who, um, who had put it out there, but I'm sure if you look it up, the, the tweet will come up. But um, this practitioner was talking about how Karl Popper identified two problem spaces, which is like the cloud space and the clock space. And when we think about the clock space, that's where a lot of engineering lies, right? It's like, okay, you're building a clock, you know what it needs to do. And so you're trying to problem solve for bringing that to fruition. The other space is the cloud space, which is like really kind of um, a space where maybe, we, you know, we would often call this wicked problems, mm -hmm. which is a space where there's a lot of potential solutions um, and they could take a variety of, they could go in a variety of different directions because the problem space is somewhat vast. And I think about systems thinking as being really, really useful for that cloud space. Even if we think things are in a clock space, I think we just need to like ask ourselves, is this in a cloud? Is there something about this that puts it in a cloud space? And I think in that thread, he brought it up because of what's happening with Twitter, mm -hmm. which is Elon Musk is coming in and he's like, has this complete clock mentality. Faster, about faster, how to faster. Work longer. Yeah, faster, faster. Exactly. Meet the deadlines. And yeah, and we design features, you're going to ship them. And he's not thinking about the cloud sort mm. of effect or problems that, that could arise from problem solving in that way. And we've already seen that with like the blue check mark, right? Like yep. <laughs> thinking about this in a cloud way means you are going to think about how people might misuse this, how people might um you know, out in the wild, kind of like the social aspect of this. Yeah. Like, I think a lot about the steep framework, which is like sociocultural, technological, ecological environment, or sorry, ecological, economic, and political. And if you think about a lot of the things that we're designing, there are implications in any of those spaces. And so how do you identify that and make sure like you're 
potentially addressing those things, or at least that you're aware of how to how to anticipate things in those spaces well, going wrong. You know, someone like Musk's, uh, it's like his his mind needs to be clouded. Uh, sorry, bad one, but uh, <laughs> it is uh, a, a good, uh, yeah, just to recover from that, I think we should take a quick break. Everyone, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. I'm talking with Cheryl Kababa, author of Closing the Loop, coming out in February of 2023. Oh, yeah, and it's a Rosenfeld Media book, if you were wondering. Uh, Cheryl, so we... We've been talking a lot about the, the the big picture of this big picture of systems thinking and how it relates to uh, to uh, certainly design thinking and maybe moving uh, past human centered design and actually you, you were you had a really good uh, metaphor I guess it's from Karl Popper about uh, 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 time space versus cloud space and and that got me thinking so. Let's say I'm that designer who, at the beginning of the podcast, was you know paralyzed, and and you're you've con- you've moved me past it. I'm not really paralyzed anymore. I'm, I'm seeing the promise of what you're covering in, in the book. That said, I've got to. Um, you're telling me I've got to do more upfront work, and I know that's going to annoy someone in the chain of command above me, and I got to go. You know, they always want me to go faster. I, mean, I may not be working for Elon Musk, but there's certainly going to be engineers in that time space, and I got to keep up with them. And long story short, how do I? Is there some aspect of what you cover in the book, uh, an artifact of some sort that's tangible enough that I can beat those people on the head with it and say, "Slow down." There is this cloud space. There are implications. What I'm talking and what I'm talking about is is real. Here, look at it. Yeah. So I basically break out 
your analysis or potential analysis into two areas. One is kind of understanding the status quo and the other is basically envisioning the future. And I think in terms of understanding the status quo, this is where you might experience frustration as far as like, oh yeah, we need to do more analysis and analysis and understanding like the current context. And there's some very um, tangible tools that you could use in that space. So I know a lot of designers are really thoughtful about conducting design research. And so first off, there's the idea of expanding your notion of design research. So it's not just end users, but it could also be those who are potentially affected or harmed by your products, um, but aren't necessarily users of it. There are other stakeholders within the system. So you have to kind of think about like who are other decision makers and conducting research with them, I think is really important. And then once you have all of this data, you're, you should be doing some sort of visual analysis with it, which is where, like the intersection of systems thinking and design because designers are really good at putting together sort of visual analysis of um, or synthesizing in visual visual ways. And so, for example, I have an example in um, in the book where I think for folks who think like, oh, this isn't accessible and this is really hard to do. Like I have an example from a student team um, at Johns Hopkins who did an analysis about a home-based medicine program and where could they kind of find ways of improving it. And they basically just like mapped all of the different stakeholders in the system and were able to pinpoint areas in which they could intervene. Um, I think there's also ways of mapping forces within the system. So I have an example of the iceberg diagram, which starts with events that are visible to you. And then you kind of look below that, you know, it's like literally like an iceberg. <laughs> and then you kind of look below that and you examine um, you know, what are the patterns and trends? What are the underlying structures? And what are the mental models in place? And any of those things can be points of intervention or points of innovation, right? Like you could be problem solving for, you know, I've worked on a lot of education projects, for example, and we might be looking at, okay, um, the way algebra is taught is not serving students today. And we can think about like different potential products or interventions or services or pedagogies that could solve for that. But what are the events that we're seeing and what are the underlying patterns and trends? What are the underlying structures and what are the mental models like within the system? Um, and those give you any like number of potential solutions, right? Um, and some will basically result in potential products. Um, so in that example, um, some of the results were, well, maybe there are some ways of changing assessments, or maybe there are some ways of changing educational software and tech products that are meant to serve these students. Um, and those are like really easy ways of like gaining alignment with your decision makers is having them go through these exercises as well and creating these maps. Um, I, do, I think like there's sort of a misunderstanding particularly with designers that 
your goal is to create this huge systems map with lots of like interlocking forces. I've, I've actually done that work before, right? So I'm not totally discounting it, but you going away and doing that work and then coming back and trying to explain it to someone, those maps are a good form of analysis, but they're not a great form of communication. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think if you are looking to do more collaboration in order to convince your decision makers, you should be doing these exercises with them. And that requires the simpler maps. So the iceberg diagram is one. The fishbone diagram is another that I find really useful in trying to understand how things, how decisions have an impact. Um, and, you know, you can look at like, um, I think there's like categories, like you look at the problem and then what are the things that feed into that problem? It could be method. It could be the way humans behave. It could be the way you're measuring things. And that gives you more um, problem solving capabilities. So yeah, there's a few versions of that that I think are really useful. And then once you're in the problem solving space, you can put together things like a theory of change. And that is also something for alignment. I think in the end, a lot of these things are really alignment tools with decision makers, it turns out. And I thought about this as I was writing the book. I'm like, am I really just like trying to make decision making more actionable? Like broadening the lens means like gaining alignment so that there can be actionable decision making, not just through your activities and what you are equipped to do but that others can enact as well. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's like, and it sounds like what you're in a way doing is equipping designers to, when they have the opportunity to work with stakeholders, to in turn equip those stakeholders with some better tools that come from systems thinking in a manageable, digestible way I mean, they could go, you know, read uh, Danella Meadows' book and, and get sort of the, the, the theory uh, or, or maybe learn how to do Wardley mapping or something like that, but they're not going to. Right. And uh, right. so it, it actually, I think what you're doing, which is a real service to the communities, is helping designers become essentially ambassadors of systems thinking to all kinds of other parties and functions and stakeholders in the organization. And well, hey, let me just thank you for writing the book. Yeah, well, thank you for, for giving <laughs> me the opportunity to put this stuff into writing. <laughs> well, yeah, we've, we've got to wrap, but I do want to make sure um, it's December, it's holiday season. So if we're going to do a podcast this time of year, you have to have a gift for our listeners. What do you got for us, Cheryl? Yeah, so... There's a book that I really like. It's by this poet called Ross Gay, and it's called The Book of Delights. And it's not a narrative book. He's a poet, and each his his task was each day over the course, I think, of maybe two years or one year, to write about something that delighted him each day. And so it could be something, it could be a flower he saw, it could be an interaction on the street um, by two other people. And as a systems thinker, I really like it because, um, you know, I have this note, this concept in the book called system spotting. And by walking around in the world, you can see kind of these indicators of systems. 
And I think his book does a little bit of that, but it's really joyful, it's really funny. And um, I, I really like his writing and you can kind of dip in and out of it like whenever you want a little bit of a pick me up. Um, and yeah, I've actually given it as gifts before. So I there, find it to be a really nice gift. If anyone is, uh, now you, you all have two books on the list to be uh, considering <laughs> folks. Cheryl Kababa, wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Reminder folks, her book, Closing the Loop, Systems Design uh, for, Systems Thinking for Designers is coming out in February of 2023. Can't wait to see what the community thinks. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's Lou. Thank you for listening to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to pop me an email, lou at rosenfeldmedia.com. Tell me what you thought. Better yet, leave me the hell alone and post a review on your favorite podcast platform. Please feed the algorithm. It really does make a difference. We want to get the word out. If you like the word, give us a hand. And uh, while I'm asking you for favors, don't forget, buy books. Support your favorite local independent publisher. We happen to be one rosenfeldmedia.com. All those great UX books are there. So thanks again.